Hey everyone, Yonatan here. Before we start the episode, I'd like to play this short message from fan Rob Matheny of the Grim Tidings podcast. Uh, we at Malazan FM have listened to the show and like it very much, so we think that as fantasy fans, you listeners will also enjoy it. Right after the message, Deadass Gates chapters 3 through 4. Stay with us. Finally, there's a podcast for the darker side of fantasy. The Grim Tidings Podcast. Your podcast for all things grimdark. Okay, so you might be asking, what is Grimdark? Grimdark is a genre of fantasy fiction, notorious for anti-heroes, gritty storylines, character-driven narratives, and morally ambiguous protagonists. From Game of Thrones to sword and sorcery and everything in between. If it's dark, if it's fantasy, and if it's brutal, we call it Grimdark. Listen and download new episodes every week on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter at Grimdark Fiction. The Grim Tidings Podcast. Your podcast for all things Grimdark. Welcome to Malazan FM episode 10, covering uh, Dead House Gates chapters 3 to 4. I hope that uh, you enjoyed the intro, uh, our little promo to for uh, Rob's uh, podcast. Uh, make sure to check that out after this, the show. Now let's go right into it. Um, so we start chapter 3 with uh, Felicine leading a rather different life in the uh, mind of a Skull Cup. Yeah, she's... Uh... She's basically fallen in with this uh, Beneth guy who seems to be like the kind of head slave on the island who's sort of working with the Malazans um, and she's kind of sleeping with him uh, in order to obtain favours. So it's it's quite the fall for the for she 14, 15 year old Felison. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so basically that's what she's been doing ever since uh, being embarked on the uh, slave ships from Malaz City. She's been uh, boring herself to, uh, not just for herself though, also for privileges for uh, Heboric and uh, Baldin and that kind of, apparently that kind of saved them from uh, starving to death on the uh, ships. And uh, now uh, also she doesn't really work other than... uh, Pleasuring uh, Beneth, and uh, Hebert gets to uh, pull the cards or something. Uh, yeah, she's she's managed to get Hebert uh, a slightly easier duty because he's got no hands, he can't <laughs> mine. So they've had him pulling cards like an ox. Um, <clears throat> but uh, Beneth agrees to let him uh, pull a plow in the fields instead, which is apparently is an easier job. <laughs> yeah, uh, I like how um, uh, just as like Felstein says, uh, there's more to it. And she basically figures out that uh, that he Bennett's got orders to get rid of uh, Hiboric. It's like we kind of uh, realize that as well. Where if if you're paying attention, you kind of uh, realize it when Felicium is also not realizing it uh, like that a little um, uh, immersion. Uh, anyway, so uh, yeah, we have this uh, little introductory uh, scene, the conversation between uh, the two of them, uh, Bennett and Felicium. Basically, tells her she needs to show uh, pleasure and stuff. Uh, then they go, she kind of, uh, leaves, and we get a little, uh, overview of the, uh, the Skull Cup, a uh, bit of an info dump. Uh, there's a bit of an observation on this sinker lake, which, uh, you need to keep an eye out for. Uh, yeah, so it sounds like Heboric may still have some sort of plans for escaping. He's sort of monitoring the, the depth of the lake. Fellison uh, thinks he's going to try and sort of swim across and go over the other side, which uh, she doesn't seem to think there's much chance of working. Yeah, uh, everyone who tries that ends up uh, with their heads on the spikes. Uh, 
Yeah. There's only deserts to run to. And uh, the Boric seems pretty interested in the, the fact that the island seems to be made of limestone, and he's commenting that the Atateral was created when something happened that basically melted the island. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it sounds like yeah, pretty, uh, pretty hardcore stuff. Yeah, I'm still wondering about uh, Tatterall. I think it's kind of answered later on in the series, but I'm not sure. Well, uh, Yeah, keep, it's keep kind it. of explained later, but at the moment it's just like this mysterious order. Yeah, it's just know that it's not natural. Yeah. It's the material. Um, I like how he's talking about, like, a uh, person says that the limestone is the bones of living things. So is that, like, kind of a fossil theory kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. It's it's quite interesting that they've they've made that observation that, because limestone is a, a sedimentary rock that's formed by sort of the uh, detritus from things uh, decomposing and then being compressed. So it's interesting that uh, Hiboric sort of has that knowledge that, that we take for granted now because you wouldn't expect people in that kind of sort of setting to have that kind of knowledge, so it's quite interesting. Yes, uh, well, maybe it's a bit of banned knowledge that he got, uh, um, he was in John trial for, you know, well, maybe, I don't know. Anyway, so um, that's our initial scene within uh, mine. We also get a bit of info from uh, this uh, guard, Pella, who he's wearing the van braces, which uh, reminds me of this um, old review of Gardens of the Moon I came across, where it said, like, like talking about a whiskey jack and the Gardens of the Moon prologue, he's like, it was wearing his van braced arms, like, oh, do you not understand that sentence? You must not be from the 17th century, ha <laughs> ha. Yeah, I like those, uh, yeah. Jokes. Anyway, so he's basically, this guard is basically, uh, talking about uh, the other guards, the, uh, Dossi, are getting restless and, uh, starts quoting, uh, the Emperor, uh, Kalanved, see who, uh, who had this, um, Star War. No, I actually it's from, uh, Duiker's works. Yeah, Imperial Campaigns, uh, book. He's like quoting something, uh, uh Yeah, he's quoting Kalanved, isn't he? It's, it's weird. There's something, like, he's, he's trying to tell. Pellison something, this this guard, this, there's something in sort of like the way he acts with her, she's sort of notices he's got a veiled intensity and he's kind of saying, oh, you might have someone who knows about history who you can ask about this. <laughs> and she just sort of looks at him <laughs> like he's an idiot <laughs> and yeah. carries on with Benna. Well, I think uh, Pella wants her to talk to Heboric about what he said, but I don't know. Yeah, uh, speaking of these history books, I, I, I keep thinking, I, like, I wish, I, I wish Erickson would kind of, like, write the whole, uh, book, like, uh, Imperial Campaigns or, uh, whatever it was, because it sounds really interesting. Uh, also, according to the dates of the, uh, authors, it's like they seem to be living, uh, like, a few decades after the events of the series, so it would be interesting to have that perspective. But I guess, uh, Erickson's got a lot of else on his plate. Um, anyway. Yeah, it would be nice if he could eventually get back to doing some sort of, uh, like a collected history of the world of Malazan or something like that would be really cool. I think he said he would do that sometime with uh, Eslamont. Uh, but then again, he has uh, the uh, Harkonnas trilogy to finish and uh, the Toblakai one, which I'm actually looking forward to a lot. Yeah, that's um, the one I'm looking forward to the most, but could have a bit of a weight on it. Which is a character we can't talk about yet. Uh, anyway, so... Uh, so yeah, we're basically getting this little uh, insight into Pelicine's new life and uh, a bit of um, foreboding about these uh, guards who are like uh, restless, just like the rest of the Seven Cities continent in their uh, threatening uh, rebellion. Uh, speaking of which, uh, we now, after this, we transition to perspective of Duiker in the, the city of Hisar, who uh, witnesses this bit of uh, attempted massacre by the Red Blades. 
of the, these people in the market. And they, they start like uh, drawing their weapons, calling everyone traitors. And it kind of makes you wonder what makes these uh, Red Blades uh, so uh, so fanatically loyal to uh, the Empress. Uh, yeah, it's <clears throat> it's kind of almost a, a cult to the Empress that they've got this so uh, sort of so so loyal and so fanatical uh, in fanatical, the loyalty. An almost fanatical devotion to the Pope. Yeah. <laughs> all you Monty Python fans out there. Um, so, uh, yeah, they're, they're starting a, little, a bit of a massacre there, but then uh, the Wiccans kind of save the day, uh, but more looking for blood, and uh, it's only at the, the, the whisker from a disaster that Coltane stops this uh, little skirmish, and we get a bit of that tension. Uh, these two brothers who uh, command the uh, Red Blades attachment, the uh, trials, they don't stay, they're not very hot on the uh, Coltane and yeah, I think Colt does a good job of uh, kind of diffusing the situation because he sort of plays the two brothers in the the red blades sort of against each other and gets them sort yeah. of arguing, and that seems to break it down a bit as well. So he does a good job. Colt comes around and uh, he starts talking about the exercises that Coltane is doing for the uh, Seventh Army, and it's uh, very interesting. It turns out that Colt is being used to make these um, magical illusions of uh, refugees that the, the said the soldiers have to rescue from the houses while the Wiccans play like the uh, rebel rebels um, are trying to kill everyone. And it's uh, very interesting. It's kind of like a fantasy version of in, uh, in um, star shows like Star Trek where I have the holodeck to simulate this kind of thing. Here we have uh, these um, magical illusions, and I uh, really found that interesting. Yeah, and it, I like the way... Um... They sort of use that as a training technique. It's it's really sort of inventive. Yeah. And uh, I like the idea of these sort of refugees all sort of refusing to cooperate when they're trying to be <laughs> evacuated. And they're like, no, no, I can't go without this. I, I need to take me me uh me favorite uh, chest of drawers. <laughs> I need to take my uh, starfleet collection. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff like that. Yeah, it kind of shows people do get attached to all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, so uh, Duke is kind of uh, imploring Culp to kind of n- knock the seventh into shape, and he says that if they manage to to win the next training exercise, then uh, Duke will be able to arrange for them to get a, a day of rest, which they sorely need. Yeah, so that's a bit of uh, good advice on uh, Dweaker's part. Uh, how, how do you pronounce uh, Dweaker's? I as well uh, had it. I keep. Uh, I remember. I remember finding this um, discussion on uh, the models on the Empire form of like, how do you pronounce Dweaker? Is it Dweaker? I sort of lean towards Dweaker, but <laughs> it could be sort of Duker as well, I suppose. Or... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think it's a name of some kind of fish, actually. Yeah, uh, who knows? Anyway, so uh, and uh, on another part of the uh, Seven Cities, we have uh, Fiddler and Crocus and uh, Absalar. And then around, it, turns, it seems that uh, Calam has slipped away during the night on his mission to deliver the uh, Book of the uh, Apocalypse. Um, and we have uh, Crocus gets a bit angry at Fiddler in his uh, bratty teenager kind of way. Yeah, he's kind of he's kind of in the right here, but he still comes across as like a sort of whiny. <laughs> Whiny breath, but um, I mean, Fiddler and Callum said that they'd take Absalar home, and they've basically just used that as a pretense to go on this sort of personal mission of revenge against Lassine. And Crocus and Absalar are just kind of getting dragged along, and 
they're not going where they wanted to go. They could have been home by now and all the rest. So I can understand his frustration, but he he still comes across as like a bit of a breath. Yeah, well, uh, he does. Uh, he does uh, notice that uh, that they're using Fiddler and Fiddler and Callum are kind of using Absalar's back because uh, yeah, she still has his memories from when she was being possessed by uh, the rope. They want to use that in case they need her skills to uh, get rid of the Empress. And uh, this uh, enrages him a bit further and uh, makes a bit of a dig at Fiddler. He calls him uh, a glorified ditch digger who's long at the tooth, which uh, ignites the uh, never-ending debate on Fiddler's age, which is... <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's unknown, isn't it? Because uh, in the Gardens of the Moon prologue, he's kind of described as like a, a young kid who's sort of barely older than uh, Gano's. But I think by the time we get to Deadhouse Gates, I think he's supposed to be much older. Uh, so I think there must have been, uh, he's sort of aged up rapidly in between the two books. Yeah, it's uh, aging too. Uh, maybe he just looks so way older than he is. Could be. Yeah, I mean, he's had a hard life dealing with explosives and digging ditches. So <laughs> maybe he's uh, sort of a bit more weather-worn than he would normally be. Focus does uh, show a bit of insight. Uh, he realizes that uh, Callum's old friends in, in uh, early time, that's sort of where they are, were not exactly uh, happy to see him. And that may be, maybe why Callum has uh, taken off. Um, yeah. Uh, I like there's a bit of a moment where like, uh, he asks uh, Fiddler, oh, what are you thinking? It's like, oh, Convergences, Tano Priest, Soul Taken. And then Fiddler says, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, that's basically that. Uh, I guess they're preparing to leave. Then uh, we have a shift to the ever uh, tearful drama of uh, Mappo and Icarium, although it's a bit leavened by our good friend Iskarov Pust, the uh, High Priest of Shadow, and his uh, antics. Um, basically, yeah, they're at this uh, temple near uh, Ravaku, the uh, desert, and um, so he basically sends them on a quest to exterminate all the spiders in his uh, temple, which is a bit of which this uh, arachnophobia becomes a bit of a theme throughout the series. Actually, it's not his Kral's not the only character I think with a uh, virulent hate of spiders. Yeah, there's uh, there's another character who doesn't like spiders as well, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I might say something about Erickson himself, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and in any case, um, it's, uh, so Mappo and Karyum are doing their old shtick of, uh, you know, Mappo says, oh, you don't want to remember your past, and Karyum using about random things. But we do get a reference to uh, nun porn, which was apparently lying around the temple. Iskaral refers them to that, but... Um, it- yeah, and uh, Icarium sort of looking at these books of where they're about, like, sort of seed, uh, spreading seeds and irrigation and stuff like that. And he's talking about how this once great society must have been sort of really um, sort of consumed by the little things. And that sort of he thinks that, that says a lot about the society that he could afford to make a book about something so sort of trivial. Yeah, I think it might uh, reflect some of uh, Erickson's own views on uh, society today. I mean, they have all these universities with uh, stuff like uh, word patterns in uh, uh, Plautus or whatever. It's like sounds very, uh, very minor. It could be a bit of a commentary on that by uh, by Erickson, which is what I think. Um, uh, There's another uh, funny line where Ikarian says to Mappo, who was kind of uh, injured earlier, like, "Oh, you must be feeling better. Your pessimism has revived." Yeah. To reflect on that. Um, 
And um, then uh, near the end of the chapter, Mappo has a bit of a flashback to when he was called by these nameless ones, which uh, kind of reminds me of once when I was like writing this, trying to write this uh, little book. And uh, this fantasy book, and the villains were going to be called the nameless ones. So I, I like, I just Googled that to see if no one had taken it. And it turns out that and I got a result from, from uh, Miles on Wiki, and it turns out there, there were these nameless ones in the Miles on series. So I was like, uh, oh well. But, you know, I, I think I'll just change it to just the nameless. But uh, anyway, still a cool name. Not great, but the nameless. <laughs> <laughs> So that, that's uh, chapter three. Uh, chapter four, we kind of uh, move to uh, Callum again, who's, uh, oh, who's uh, kind of riding through the desert on his way to uh, Shaikh. And we get this description of this huge uh, gray uh, dust storm, which was a bit of a brought back of a few unpleasant memories to me of this uh, huge uh, sandstorm we had here in uh, Israel and uh, the area a few weeks back. And I was like, you can breathe. My sister had to come home from school because she uh, has asthma and uh, a bit of a unpleasant memories of uh, choking on the way to school. You know, kind of coughing on the way yeah. to school. But, uh, anyway, so um, also we have Felicity again. Uh, this time she accompanies Benef on a, on a tr- visit to Captain Sawark, the uh, commander of the, of the um, mine. Uh-huh. Yeah, so uh, Benef is reporting to Sawark about this uh, this cave-in at the mine and how many have died. And he kind of infers that uh, Sawark was sort of hoping for a particular person to die. Neither of them says who it is. But Benef's kind of making that accusation that, that Sawark's supposed to make sure that someone dies in the mines. Yeah, and uh, then it suddenly it kind of turns and uh, and um, Benef kind of figures out who Felicin is. He apparently didn't know until now for some reason, um, and he kind of gets really angry at her for some reason. Um, yeah, and he kind of throws them out, and Benef kind of questions Felicin about who she is really, and she denies that she's a noble and claims that she was a, an orphan, and uh, so he beats her up. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those uh, kind of, but he does kind of believe her at the end, or because uh, Hibork shows up and kind of covers for her, and uh, she says she's like Kushi, like was raised in this uh, monastery in Malaz City, but even though she apparently doesn't know what the poorest quarter of the city is, uh, he still believes her, which is kind of like those those uh, kind of silly moments in the movies where like this kid, the uh, hero has to um, kind of fake an identity and. Uh, the uh, bad guys are the question now, like, who do you think you are, or whatever, and then they like, go, like, go like, uh, 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 and then they make something stupid up, and they still get yeah. believed, and it's kind of ridiculous. Um, could be maybe just want to believe, I don't know. Uh, especially in Bennett's case, he doesn't maybe just doesn't want to have to get rid of her for uh, something. Uh, yeah. So, you know, also there's a bit of a, this line. Uh, and uh, Felicin, uh, she'd grown to like calluses, and I think it kind of reflects, uh, kind of encapsulates her journey now. She's like, uh, learning to love, or kind of, uh, Stockholm Syndrome, the world, uh, tough world, you know, calluses and everything. And she's kind of like, uh, acclimatizing to people like Bennett, who aren't exactly, uh, soft. Uh, yeah, it's, it's when she sees, um, Pella again, uh, Pella, and, uh, yes. he's kind of asking if she, if she'd spoken to, Eboric and she's just kind of really in a daze at this point and she's just kind of like oh you know if, if you want me uh speak to Beneth he'll he'll let you oh yeah and, he, the... and, and Pella's like no no I was I was you know you've aged like 10 years in a week yeah she's uh, been smoking uh this uh Durhang, Durhang. 
which becomes a bit of a hallmark of the uh, Seven Cities setting in uh, this in the Malazan. Um, there's also there's also some tea of it. Uh, the Borg wants her to um, like quit it, but he does give her some Durhang tea after she wakes up from the beating that Beneth gave her. Yeah, I think it's really sad that there's like the first words out of her mouth after she's been beaten up is tell him I'm sorry. Yeah, the uh, Stockholm thing again. Um, uh, and uh, there's some stuff about uh, Baudin, um, the big guy who decapitates people. Um, him, uh, he's uh, going a bit of out of out of line. And, uh, yeah, he's he's like kind of been working for Benner, but then something's happened, and Sawak's had to arrest him. Uh, he's sort of getting into trouble as usual, I think, uh-huh. being his usual uh, usual self. Yeah, and um, that's uh, basically it for school club this episode, and uh, now we get a big shift to Calam, who arrives uh, ahead of the storm at this uh, Malzahn keep, called uh, Lateral Keep, and uh, it seems to be kind of a tavern, but not really, because they let these, uh, so the Malzahn soldiers there, they let these uh, civilian uh, merchants, and his merchant and his wife, uh, stay there, but uh, he, when the Red Blades arrive, he says, oh, what do you think this is, a, a tavern, or an inn? Uh, it's kind of weird. Um, yeah, I suppose they, they don't mind sort of offering people shelter, but if they're going to be eating the food and drinking the drink, then uh, they've got to pay for it, yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, Callum arrives there, and uh, he's followed by those two red blades who extracted the info of him, from him from, uh, from the uh, from that informant dude from last episode, uh, Mabda, who had just talked to Callum and then right afterwards uh, told them that he was going to deliver the book, and so now there these red blades, uh, the Starryl and this other one, are on his trail to get to, to take out Shaikh and uh, kill the rebellion uh, before it can start. Um, so basically, there's a bit of uh, bickering going around in the uh, tavern when uh, the merchant's wife asks for a reading of the deck, which is kind of like <laughs> those. It's kind of like a kind of cliche bit in uh, Mazan, where every time uh, Erickson needs to get needs to do foreshadowing, he's like, oh, like he's like uh, it's like the second draft of the book. It's like, oh, I didn't foreshadow X, Y, and Z. I better do that by doing writing about it in the mysterious uh, war and code language in uh, reading of the decks. It's like the king of high house X does Y, and that it, it does actually make uh, total sense if you go back and uh, read it, which is a bit of fun. Yeah, I mean the the reading in this case is uh, perhaps less uh, less cryptic than than often it is, where you just have Callum surrounded by death <laughs> as an assassin. So yeah, and not too it's, surprising. Uh, not not too uh, too difficult to to work out, and obviously because Callum's already revealed that he's a claw to the captain, then uh, the lost Ara is able to see the captain's reaction, and by that she knows that he knows that Callum's a claw. And that's the reason why uh, she and the other Red Blade kill everyone in the in the uh, guardhouse before they leave. I see. So uh, because because Callum's kind of took this guy into his confidence, it's ended up getting him killed. Yeah, another uh, sad uh, falling in the book. Um, so uh, yeah, so after this uh, massacre but, uh, and uh, foreshadowing, the chase goes on. Uh, Callum rides out, and the uh, Red Blades are after him. Uh, and then well, we go back again to uh, Mapo and Carrium, and uh, they're basically exploring the temple, and they, they happen upon this really uh, dark chamber, 
with uh, they basically figured out what's going on with all the uh, soul taken and divers, the uh, shapeshifters are on the path, uh, path of hands. They're on the way. They're searching for to become ascendants. And uh, Iskral Pusta then uh, kind of comes in and starts one of his uh, trademark uh, rants, which are like semi deep and semi idiotic. <laughs> <laughs> He's like something, oh, you fools, you fools, and stuff. And then he's like, starts rambling on how, like, the uh, map only carry him, like, always wandering around for so long without becoming descendants, which, uh, does raise the question on how, uh, uh, Mappa was still alive. I mean, remember back in, uh, Gardens of the Moon, we had this, uh, we got, we were told that this, um, this clock they have in Dirigistan was, uh, given to them by, uh, Icarium in the company of the Mappo about a thousand years ago. So I guess uh, trails are just a pretty uh, long lift. I mean, we don't need many other than uh, Mappo, so I guess I'm not to extrapolate from that. Yeah, I mean, people having sort of extended lifespans is, is kind of a, a theme of these books because I think Kellenved was sort of over 200 years old by yeah, the time also, he ascended. Uh, also, uh, if you notice, uh, Dujek and... Uh, Maybe this Kujak, um, they are a bit long lived, but, uh, Dujak was around, uh, when the Empire was founded, so, uh, I'm yeah. But, uh, so I don't, it's good I to think the Emperor on. had sort of elixirs and stuff like that that kind of extended people's lifespans, and so important people, he'd, he'd give that to, to keep them around when he needed them. Ah, uh, Dujek, uh, I think the Dujek thing was kind of explained, uh, later on in the series, and it's a bit of a, it's a minor thing, but I think, uh, I can leave it for now, like, Anyway, so Scott keeps ranting uh, about this, and uh, he keeps repeating this uh, phrase, uh, a life given for a life taken, which is uh, a very uh, important phrase to remember, not just in in this book, but I think uh, even in the next book and possibly after that. It's a a bit of a a line you you, you would uh, do well to keep in your mind. It's also kind of what uh, TV Trips calls uh, arc, arc words. So, uh, you don't, uh, skip over us uh, long uh, passages of dialogue. Uh, they're also, uh, quite funny, so, uh, don't uh, skip them. Yeah, and then we get the tale of, uh, Iskarel Pust and his, his epic, uh, staring contest with, uh, with a Bokaral monkey. <laughs> yeah. And he, he uses the fact that he, that he lost the contest as, as evidence of his superior intellect. <laughs> yes, because only someone who is, so empty and dull can uh, keep staring so long or say some uh, nonsense like that. But it does yeah. have, it does sound, a, it is one of those things that he says that sound a bit deep because he also says like, oh, only people who are like so blind and so uh, high down to some ideology can uh, resist so long. And but it's kind of, sometimes it's hard with uh, Iskwell to, uh, to see when he's uh, just uh, joking or and when he's uh, trying to say something or rather when Erickson's trying to say something. Uh, yeah. So then, uh, Pust sends, um, Ikarium and Mappo on this, uh, epic quest to find that is room, <laughs> which, which, which the spiders have stolen, apparently. Yeah. And, uh, that's where we leave them. And, uh, for the final scene of, uh, chapter four, we have to go, we shift back to Dweaker and, uh, the reincarnated, uh, warlock Sormo. And uh, now they kind of go out, go a bit out of the city of uh, Hisar, and uh, Sormo d- does this uh, weird, weird uh, ritual where he uh, kind of o- he opens a warren, and uh, they fall in, they fall into it, and they meet this uh, kind of shapeshifter, soul-taken dude who almost kills them. Uh, I think he just uh, kind of moves on, and he's like, also, this is how Duika finds out about, about uh, the chain of hand, uh, path of hands thing going on. 
Yeah, it's like all hell breaks loose and Sormo seems to be in some kind of trance. He's not in control of the ritual anymore and there's just soul taken everywhere. Um, I think uh, Cult gets attacked. Uh, Duke has got fire ants all over his legs. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so Cult uh, solves the ritual by punching Sormo and knocking him out. <laughs> To which uh, Sormo jokes that he's only got ten crows left now, <laughs> which is like a, when a cat's had nine lives and it gets yeah. run over, and you say it's only got eight left. So <laughs> That's true. Um, they, they do have this bit of a line of um, Sormo says that if the memories of this pre uh, the uh, pre civilization remain, and it's kind of a theme, especially in this book, where the, the land itself kind of remembers its past. Uh, so uh, keep that in mind. We have a lot of that, especially with, with uh, Dweeker's arc. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I like how uh, uh, Culp calls um, Dweeker a uh, book grub. It's like a bookworm, except in uh, fantasies. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think the uh, last line of this, uh, last line of the chapter is uh, kind of sums up what you, what uh, I feel a lot like in the series. It's like uh, he sends something profound in what he watched, but it was too weird to pursue it. Like uh, you see, you think you like pouring over these lines, you think, oh, there's probably something that should be, that we should be uh, noticing, but uh, you know, just trying to process everything that's happening. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's really true. We hope we're helping you guys, especially those of you who are reading for the first time, kind of process what's going on and keep things in mind. And that's pretty much it for this week. Next mm-hmm. time, Deadhouse Gates chapters 5 through 6. And after that, chapter 5 will be finishing the first mini book. And after that, after that episode, we'll be probably just um, do the rest of uh, book two, and it's on to the uh, victorious chain of dogs. But uh, well, we'll see. Mm-hmm. If you haven't liked us yet on Facebook, please do. Just search for Miles on Event Podcast. Also, uh, make sure to uh, rate us on iTunes and search again for Miles on Event Podcast, as our friend uh, Benjamin already has. And uh, we'll see you guys uh, next time on the Miles on Event. Yep. Thanks, guys. See you next time.